0: Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the crisis in China's real estate sector and the coup in Gabon. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you?
1: Doing very well, Ethan. Uh, pretty excited for our uh, pop-up newsletter that we're doing at the United Nations
0: General Assembly that we just announced this morning. Yes, very excited about that. There's more about that in the advertisement section, which is everyone's favorite part of the podcast. So just wait <laughs> a little bit to hear more. But yes, we're going to New York City. Uh, I could not be more excited. I already have all the, the pizza places, bagel places that I want to hit. So Ooh, um, that, yeah, I'm I am to you and we will be, will, be, will be putting on some, some LB. That week, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, John, do you remember Mark Zandi, uh, the you know the Moody's economist that I spoke to on the podcast about the debt ceiling in mid-May? Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, okay, so in, in November of two thousand five, uh, Mark Zandi, he's he's kind of a, a Nostradamus. He wrote this article titled "Where Are the Regulators," which essentially predicted that fissures in the real estate and housing markets in the U.S would lead to a recession. And around two years later, as we all know, that's exactly what happened. And right now, John, we're seeing some similar fissures in the global real estate sector, and especially in the world's second largest economy. Oh, right. Okay. You've buried the lead a bit there. Right.
1: I assume you're referring to to China and and the news um, that China's largest property developer, a company called Country Garden, and to be clear, that's not a Chinese version of the Olive Garden. I I did actually check, um, but yeah, <laughs> Country Garden warned investors on Wednesday that uh, it uh, had posted net losses of seven billion in the first half of 2023, um, and that it was at risk of defaulting on some of its payments on its on its debt payments. Um, it's apparently in a whopping 187 billion in debt, which is kind of wild. Um, but so, in order to raise funds and, and avoid default and to meet its debts Uh, the company announced it's going to issue some new shares at a a major discount that when you issue new shares obviously that drives down the price of its shares of its stock Um, it's already fallen 67 percent this year already, so further, it's going to go down further, um, and also it's going to sell part of its business to smaller competitors. You know, it's a bit of an emergency situation. You don't do that if if everything's going well. Um, and I think what makes this especially shocking is that Country Garden was for a long, long time one of the safest and most reliable companies in in China in China's real estate market.
0: Right, and Country Garden is just the latest Chinese real estate company to struggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a really tough few years for the for the segment in China. Um, one of Country Garden's top competitors, Evergrande, um, they defaulted on debt payments back at the end of 2021. Um, and actually just these, two weeks- These
0: real estate companies in China have such- aspirational, lighthearted names. I know, don't they?
1: Evergrande and Country Garden, it's like you have no idea what they (laughs) do. I'd love to go there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, actually you wouldn't anymore because um, Evergrande uh, two weeks ago filed for bankruptcy in the US officially after defaulting back in 2021, as I said. Um, Now, you know, at the time that Evergrande defaulted, it wasn't sort of clear whether it was a company issue, whether it was a terribly run company, or whether it was symptomatic of a, a broader problem in China's real estate sector. Um, you know, Evergrande's business was for a long time, it was built on heavy borrowing, that was their business model. Um, and, and as of right now, the company has debts of 330 billion. Um, and that makes it- Oh the, my goodness. Right. It makes it the world's most indebted property firm. Um, interestingly, they return, Evergrande I'm talking about here, they returned to trading on Monday after 17 months in suspension um, and their shares immediately plummeted 90%, meaning they have lost 99% of their market value over the last three years, um, So, which is, you know, Unthinkably, unthinkably bad for them. Um, But anyway, if the question was kind of whether that collapse, Evergrande's collapse, indicated kind of stresses in the company or the wider industry, it's pretty clear now that the numbers that Country Garden just posted suggest that it's a
0: systemic China-wide issue, right? China-wide, as it may be, John, this is a global issue. I mean, I I was just reading the other day about uh, what they're calling the pandemic-driven real estate doom loop. Especially in mid-sized American cities, essentially this idea that the pandemic allowed people like you and me, lots of workers, to to work remotely. Yeah. Uh, we we've stayed in cities, but a lot of remote workers haven't. Uh, that leaves commercial real estate firms without tenants. It means real, retail businesses like restaurants lose customers, et cetera, et cetera. This cycle continues. What makes the situation in China different?
1: Yeah, first on that, you're right. You only have to go into kind of the center of a lot of the major cities to see that there's a there's a real problem um it's a real thing the doom loop although i suggest you kind of you know, maybe read some more cheerful things before you go to bed in the future. But, um, you know, I think the, you're right to say it's global. It doesn't just exist in China or the U.S. It's, um, you know, service-based economies in, in Europe are having this problem as well. Um, you know, I think you can imagine a scenario where business districts right around the world become a real shadow of their former selves, you know, probably not New York City or London, but the small to mid-sized cities that you mentioned across lots of developed economies could really get hollowed out. Um, but I think what makes this situation in China different is that real estate is, is ha- well, has been such a massive growth engine for the Chinese economy, right? Um, you know, real estate firms were once the largest employers in the whole country, and the sector accounts for about 25% of China's GDP compared to around 17, 18 to 20% in, in the US and Europe. Um, plus in China, uh, the real estate industry accounts for two thirds of household wealth. A lot of money is tied up in people's property assets. Um, I mean, one of the great tragedies of Evergrande's collapse was that they funded a lot of their construction projects by selling, you know, pre-selling condo units before they were built. Um, you know, that's not uncommon to buy off plan in, in the US or Australia or wherever, but Chinese developers took that practice and really just turned it up to 11. They sold average Chinese families a, a dream of security and, and very modest prosperity in return for a down payment. Um, and a lot of folks took out loans to purchase homes that in the end didn't end up getting built.
0: Right. And, and think about all the companies and workers that make their livelihoods, I guess, adjacent to the real estate sites here. Uh, yeah. I was reading something else. Uh, you can tell I do I do a lot of reading, John. A lot uh, of reading. Uh, I'm, I'm a reader. Uh, <laughs> I was reading something about a, a, a guy who makes fences and you know the billboards that pop up around construction sites. And he's owed tens of thousands of dollars by Country Garden. He doesn't expect to ever get paid. I mean, so you can see how deep this can go. I mean, how bad could this be for for China's economy?
1: Yeah, it, it that's a really great point, and it's something that can get lost. I, I don't think anyone has a good sense of how far it will go. I mean, China's economy is already in a bit of trouble. You know, post COVID growth hasn't. I don't think, hit the highs that many expected. Um, export numbers are down year on year. You know, in layman terms, that means China selling less stuff to the rest of the world. Um, and that would potentially not be a massive problem if its economy also didn't seem to be in the early stages of, of what looks like deflation, um, which means domestic consumption is down as well at the same time. I think the common thread here is that China is suffering a real crisis of confidence um, from foreign investors who are pretty uneasy with how much control the Communist Party um, has over the country's private sector. Um, I think there's a lot of a lack of confidence from domestic companies who are perhaps less hesitant to hire given these economic problems, the economic environment. And of course, from Chinese consumers who appear reticent reasonably so in my view, uh, to spend their money given the issues in the labor market and and the fact that a lot of their money might be tied up in these kinds of failing assets that we're talking about. It's a really bad cycle for policymakers in Beijing. Um, and now we've got the potential collapse of another real estate developer, China's biggest, um, and also one of its safest and kind of reliable companies. That's not going to help. Um, I think experts would say that the real way out of this is to you know, spend big publicly, big public spending, you know, stimulus to use another word. But so far the Chinese government seems to have been pretty uh, hesitant to do that um, because it's already in some, debt distress, or, you know,
0: the country's in debt distress as it is. Am I talking to John Fowler or John Maynard Keynes?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair, um, you know, mixing it up is fair. I, I don't blame you. I am brilliant like he was. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, I, I'm probably getting a little bit too deep in the weeds of the macro here, but um you know, President Xi is, I think, personally opposed to stimulus. And I think that's important to note because um, I actually read something recently. Not only you read, I read as well. Wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I read something that said, I don't really remember what it was, but I I promise it was true. Um, Xi Jinping apparently thinks that the youth of the country, um, you know, the ones that may, may have reason to be the least confident in China's economy in the future. Um, She thinks that they could do with a little hardship, apparently. You know, she was famously sent down during the Cultural Revolution. He worked as a peasant in the fields. And I think people think that he thinks the current youth could do with a little toughening up. Kind of sounds like my grandpa used to when he was sitting in his armchair after a couple of whiskeys. Um, But (laughs) it's, you know, if that is true, and who knows, it's not the kind of viewpoint you kind of want to hear from your leader that to inspire confidence in your economic position and your future, right?
0: Certainly not. I mean, by now, John, it, it's clear that a rot in the real estate sector can quickly become a wider rot in the economy. China mm-hmm. isn't any economy. It's the second biggest economy in the world. So are we seeing a, a Mark Zandi moment? Is is China's real estate bubble a canary in the coal mine for the global economy? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, you have a real chicken and egg problem.
1: Um, it's hard to say which is the chicken and which is the egg. But I think a lot of companies are kind of pulling capital and their production out of China because there are now so many risks. Um, you know, not just the political... Environment, the risky political environment, um, but everything else we've been talking about as well. You know, I think it's interesting. Did the did the political risk cause that economic risk, or did the economic problems that China had convince the government that it needed to kind of assert more control uh, and thereby create the political risk? I don't think the answer really matters in the end. It's just bad news for the global economy. Um, And in particular, the countries that have most closely hitched their wagons to the Chinese kind of investment train. If I may use a pretty bad analogy, um, you know, there won't there probably won't be the scale of infrastructure investments from Chinese creditors that there have been in the past. And and the trade, the Chinese trade that these countries had come to rely on for decades will probably become less reliable going forward. Um so I think to answer your question, it's it's generally not great news for anybody.
0: But on the broad side, here comes that ad. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by us. Yes, us, International Intrigue. The Intrigue team is heading up to New York City this month to cover the UN General Assembly and will be publishing a daily newsletter featuring all the biggest stories from inside the building. If you love Intrigue and want to know more about how the world's leaders confront the biggest challenges of our time, climate change, free trade, the war in Ukraine, you'll absolutely love this newsletter. Check out the link in the show notes to sign up. All right, welcome back. John, it's another day, and we've got yet another military takeover in Africa, this time in Gabon. Uh, in the newsletter, we called it Deja Coup. Pretty good. Uh, but I've got to give props to our friends at The Economist who wrote, going, going, Gabon. Uh, <laughs> I think I think whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to say about it, it, it just seems to keep happening.
1: Yeah. Look, if we're competing with The Economist for for punny titles noted. They are noted champions of using the punny title. I am I'm, I'm here for it. Proud of us and our sense of humor, Ethan, (laughs) but no, yes, you're right. Um, you know, we're not short of political instability in that part of Africa lately, unfortunately. Um, I think it's interesting that there are sort of no threads or no specific types of regimes that seem immune to this streak of coups over the last couple of years. Um, coups have happened in democracies like Niger, we covered that, uh, in countries that are transitioning to democracies like Sudan. Uh, and now we're seeing another coup uh, happen in Gabon, which has been led by the same family since 1967, so certainly not democratic. Um, and as with all coups, right now we're in this kind of fog of war moment where it's not completely clear what's happened and who's going to be in charge but it does seem that the country's president, Ali Bongo, has been removed from power and placed under house arrest alongside... Uh, several members of his family.
0: So who is Ali Bongo? And what do we know about why he was removed from office? So
1: Ali Bongo has been the president of Gabon since uh, 2009. He took power from his father, Omar Bongo, who had ruled the country for almost 42 years. Um, And for those of you whose African geography could use maybe just a little brush up, Gabon is a a fairly large country on the Atlantic coast of Africa, kind of in that corner where the continent sort of slims down as you go south. Um, Next door to the Republic, Republic of congo and around the corner from nigeria
0: offensive to call it the armpit probably but that's well i didn't want to say that i i i I, I prefer my just that little bit where it gets slimmer
1: yeah (laughs) but yes the armpit um it it's a former french colony um dependent on oil revenues um and is home to some of the most stunning national parks on the continent uh and some of the most diverse flora and fauna on earth. I always just like to give a little context about African countries when we talk, (laughs) uh, when we talk about the continent, Ethan, because otherwise people seem to, to think it all runs together. But, um, anyway, back to the bongos, (laughs) um, during, uh, Ali's father, Ali's father, Omar's long, long presidency, um, Gabon had an oil boom, but the bongo family kept a lot of those revenues for themselves. Um, Omar then used that to buy houses all over the world and, and apparently, to build himself an $800 million presidential palace, which I can't even begin to comprehend what $800 million buys you. But anyway, um, you know, he really let his dictatorial streak fly when it came to elections. His party would do all the classic things, clamp down on other parties, manipulate votes, um, you know, even even I think poison opposition leaders, which is pretty ruthless. Yeah. Um, And I'd say his son, Ali, mostly stuck to a similar strategy, the family family business um, during the course of his 14-year presidency. He wasn't popular at all, though. And I think his father was potentially a little bit more popular than him. Um, but during the most recent election, which was just last week on the 26th of August, Ali won around 65% of the vote in what were very, very widely disputed elections. And that's what the coup leaders say they were responding to. They said people, you know, just fed up with not having their votes fairly counted.
0: Well, John, that, that leads to a somewhat uncomfortable question, Uh can't believe I'm asking this, but was this a good coup? Is is such a thing possible? Look,
1: there's no real answer to that. Or at least, there's not one that I'm comfortable giving. Um, but what we what we can do is kind of categorize these things, right? For example, we have coups like the recent one in Niger, um, which seems opportunistic, and it overturned what I think most in the kind of international community viewed as a democratically elected government. Uh, And then we have this coup in Gabon, which seems like it's more overthrowing many decades of nakedly corrupt and undemocratic rule by a single family. I don't want to describe it as a good coup because, based on that description, um, you know I'll get emails asking whether I support overthrowing the British monarchy, right? <laughs> but I, I think what's clear is that Ali Bongo's presidency was appalling. It was just like a bad. He was he was bad at his job, um, despite sizable oil revenues um, and Gabon actually being one of Africa's richest countries. Um, ordinary Gabonese people still live in in. Bad poverty, um, and that's probably why so many people celebrated his ouster. Of course, that doesn't mean this isn't also a power grab. Time will tell. You know, I think it's true that most military military hunters, when they come to power in a coup, um, don't like to give up that power once they've gotten it. Um, and also you'll never guess who, uh, the country's new interim president is, Ethan. Drumroll please. It's, uh, Ali Bongo's cousin. Oh, no. So, <laughs> right. My expectations aren't super high for, for reform in Gabon anytime soon.
0: How has the world responded to this? I mean, this is a, a pattern that we've seen over and over. Are, are leaders around the world just sort of throwing their hands up at this point?
1: Yeah. Well, if there's anything, I think that the global community likes less than dynastic autocratic leadership, it's military governments. Um, so plenty of countries, including the African Union, that they they came out and condemned the coup pretty quickly. Um, I think the big loser out of all of this is, is France. I mean, look, there, there are lots of reasons that these coups keep on happening, um, but when 16 out of Africa's 24 coups since the year 2000 and seven out of eight since 2020 have taken place in Francophone countries, you start to wonder about French policy on the continent. Um, you know, by propping up people like Amar and Ali Bongo for so long, I think it's pretty clear that people across the continent view France, not only just as a former colonizer, which of course they were, but also in more recent times as a protector of these corrupt elites. Um, and, you know, of course, geopolitics abhors a vacuum and France's declining influence in that region leaves openings for other countries to fill.
0: Well, John, I, I hate to say that we'll Maybe be talking about another coup sometime soon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we've got yet another great guest piece about tensions in the South China Sea in today's international entry newsletter from one of the foremost East Asia experts in the world. I mean, this just keeps happening. So make sure to give it a read. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday.